We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast proudly brought to you from the island state of Tasmania in Australia. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kate Johnson and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people. We record on Lutruwita and also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we'll be talking about Antarctica, Macquarie Island and communicating science through picture books, which author and illustrator Carol Tollock can fill us in on. But Kate, I love your episodes because they always provide a different perspective to science. So tell us a little bit more about what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, sure, Neve. So today we're very lucky to have Coral with us and Coral is an award-winning illustrator and author and she's illustrated over 50 fiction and non-fiction books for children. Many of her books communicate scientific concepts with a focus on the natural world. And I'd actually kind of like to start the episode today with Coral reading us a little bit from one of her books. We have a few of her books in front of us here. So Coral, would you read us a little extract from one of your books called One Small Island, please? Just for a little background, this is not my writing, but it is a quote <clears throat> taken from an overseer of the sealers on Macquarie Island, and it's dated May 1816. There have been many earthquakes, the first of which took place on October the 31st last year. The ground moved like the motion of waves, and there was a noise in the earth, like distant thunder, rocking and falling several mountains. This had been preceded by a cloudy atmosphere for several days' duration, during the course of which neither the sun moon nor stars were seen. The people became very much alarmed and expected nothing short of the island's total disappearance or being engulfed within its bowels. Thank you so much, Coral. So while we're talking about one small island, would you tell us a little bit about about the process of writing it and how it came about? Because I know it was a, it was a collaboration with another author called um, Alison Lester. Sure. Um, Alison and I have both been very fortunate to be Arts Fellows for the Australian Antarctic Division. At the same time she was going south, um, I was headed south on a tourist ship as an artist in residence. And Alison came back completely obsessed by Antarctica and said, I've got to go again. So <clears throat> the next year after that, she and I, with some of our family too, we voyaged south to Antarctica into the Ross Sea area again. And she went down as a digital recorder and I... Um, was the artist in residence and we've kept up a really firm friendship ever since. One day she rang me up and suggested that she wanted to do a book on Macquarie Island and for me it was just you know green and lumpy and I was so obsessed with the ice I didn't want to do it but she took a while and over months she convinced me because we have very different ways of translating what we see and um Alison is prolific in her work and writes a great deal as well and takes a lot of photographs and also, you know, draws and paints. And for me, over the years, I've kept journals. So for the first time I went down, I had journals from talking to everybody right through to drawing to 
to doing the fictional sort of concepts as well as the factual concepts. And Alison suggested to me, why don't we do it like this, that we do it in two ways, that you write journal entries, that we have a, a singular story going through which she wrote, and we have these big, long landscapes and the beautiful painted landscapes are Alison's, and then the journal entries are really more of a padding out of the story. So you can read the story in different levels. So it's been accepted to be read by people from, you know, very young and they read the, the the lyric sort of poetic text of Alison's and just see my work like wallpaper really right through to older readers who will then delve into the the other material that's on here and together it just tells the one story. That's really great and the, and the way you talk about collaborating with Alison, like we were just saying before, it's very much in science, it's just the same. We collaborate all the time, sometimes with people who have very different ideas to us, but having that diversity of opinions is what makes a good piece of work. Of course, and yeah. the whole thing is none of these books, not one single thing here, would be possible without the scientists that we worked with. And the amazing things that you that we've been told, and for me... I just love the fact that sometimes um, somebody will tell me something, a scientist will tell me something, and then my mind just goes off into the most, you know, onto different levels. I mean, I love research just as much as I love fictional elements. So with me, with Macquarie Island, I created a series of characters that belonged to the island, that I fictionalised, that I thought would be there and it was from things that everybody told me that all the scientists told me about the island. Mm. Could you, for our listeners who mm. might not know Macquarie Island, can you give us a bit of background about the island and then maybe a bit of insight into how you got those stories and which ones stood out for you? Sure, it's, uh, Macquarie Island is changing too, it's still growing so it's like a little blimp I suppose um, on the edge of one of the tectonic plates and it has been thrust, you know, up and out of the ocean, and it's one of the only places in the world where you can actually study the geological processes of how life began. The main reason it has its world heritage status is that, plus also its endemic plant life, etc., which was, you know, completely threatened by humans coming in and bringing in, you know, um, rodents, etc. And it is literally, it's a long way away from from Australia and really it belongs with the subantarctic islands of um, of New Zealand. Very small amount of beach for it, but it's also a haven for a lot of subantarctic animals to come and breed up and go off again. So the beaches are crowded um, with animals, so crowded that you can't get a foothold in. For Australian listeners anyway, if you grabbed a piece of bread, and put butter on it and put hundreds and thousands all over it. Tiny little lolly things that we're not meant to have anymore. We used to have <laughs> when we were little kids. That's what the beaches would be like, full of king penguins and wow. royals and stuff. It is amazing. And they come there, have their babies, you know, the albatross, all sorts of things, and then go off from there. It's a very interesting island, but it's had a very difficult and sad historical life because of sealing um, and like many other islands, and people came and exploited it. And we came with things of our own and tried to introduce animals that wouldn't last. I mean, horses couldn't go up these steep cliffs. Do you know when the sealers first got to Macquarie Island, they found up on these incredible 
incredibly high. And it's not really cliffs, they're just mountains that go into the ocean. They found the wreck of a ship so ancient, they have no idea of where it came from. Wow. Yep, and what did they do with it? They burnt it. No. Firewood, because the whole place is full of um, subantetic plants, which are um, mega herbs and, you know, these incredible plants. Mm. But there's no trees or anything. So, And, in fact, they killed the huge elephant seals and used their hides to, to cover over, you know, shacks that they were building themselves to live in. And they slaughtered all these animals there. Macquarie Island, it was the first people, the first scientific trips that were going to Antarctica that saw this slaughtering on this island and stopped this happening. And in fact, Mawson was one of the ones who took that back to the Royal Society in London and did an entire speech about it. And it was then preserved as a nature reserve. But I suppose it was just luck too that, you know, things were changing and, you know, our societies were changing and the need for those things wasn't around anymore and in fact Sydney made most of its wealth its first wealth wealth off sealing wow you know look it's a, it's been a huge mess of what we've done there over periods of time and now it's just under some good management and I think the people the first scientists who went down and showed how furious they were about this um actually would be so proud of this it was the first place actually Mawson's expedition going down to Antarctica, set up. It was um, 1911, Douglas Mawson's Australasian Antarctic Expedition stopped at Macquarie Island and set up a telegraph relay. And so that's how the world knew of people reaching the South Pole. So And it came through Macquarie Island and then to Hobart and through the world. So it's had an interesting human history, but quite disastrous. I suppose in a way, though, do you think it's like a microcosm of what we're doing in other lands on a bigger scale where maybe it's harder to see the impact so readily? Definitely. And it's also very interesting because if you look at Macquarie Island, it, it's, just, it's, it's not just in the Southern Ocean. It, it is on, on this incredible globe that we live on and the oceans are racing around and the winds are coming and there's this tiny little speck of land. And so, of course, it's an incredible monitoring system now mm. also there to be able to tell us what is happening in our atmosphere and if there is any nuclear discharge anywhere it's a vitally important role and it has it's always had from the very beginning the most important role which we were talking about before meteorology mm. because what happens with our oceans as we know and the and the the dance that our atmosphere and oceans um, do. That's so vitally important to our climate. And this is a jewel to be able to have this as a site. And so it's important for that, let alone for the fact that it is this incredible place to go and study. Yeah. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Kate Johnson and our guest, Coral Tullock. Stay with us in just a moment. We'll be talking more to Coral about her work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about communicating science through picture books. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Coral Tullock. 
And Coral, I kind of like to ask you, what's the process that you go through when you're starting to design and write and illustrate a picture book? I suppose every single book is different. And for me, it's it's the actual subject material itself. So first of all, I have to be interested in that and be passionate about that and then try and research that as mm. much as possible. And I always think that the best science is the fact that there's curiosity behind everything and there aren't closed doors. You know, with scientists, I found it's just this love of finding out something new, of maybe concreting the fact of, yes, that's right, we know that's right, but what else is out there that is different from that? And that curiosity and that inspiration is the stuff that I'd like to see in schools from a very early age. Did you have a background in science, Coral, that led you to want to pursue this type? Or how did you say, hey, I really want to start creating in this space? No, I got expelled from school. And, you know, so I never <laughs> got to go to university except to a couple of years at, at art school. So, But I suppose my interest in science, it's because it is around us and it's everywhere. And I wish it had been so much more approachable to me at school than what it was in both primary and secondary school. But I'm very old now, so, you know, I would hope it's different, but we do a lot of work in schools. We go around and visit schools and do workshops and things, and I have to say to you, I fear what I see. It's not... It is seen as some specialised area, whereas it's not that at all. And, of course, we should be inspiring every child to be curious and... And, and, to try and try and find out things and to understand how things work, but to try and also think that there are edges and little bits that you can peel back that no one's seen before and, you know, and to find that out for themselves. I mean, that's the stuff that we should be helping with. I think we completely agree. Uh, our show, Science Communication, is, is what we're all... We're so fascinated about and we've all come from different backgrounds. We've all ended up in science, but we often talk about making science accessible to everyone because all it is like you say it's that curiosity it's that asking questions and I'd kind of like to ask you a little bit more about your time in Antarctica because we've had guests on the show before who, who've been but they've been scientists doing research um, for you know a specific scientific project so as an artist and illustrator could you tell us a little bit about what going to Antarctica was like for you? It was just one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. And it's just, because it's over 20 years ago when I first went, you know, it's been now decades and basically an obsession. You know, they say you get ice in your veins once you go. <laughs> and definitely by being on the tourist ships that I've been on as well, everyone has an epiphany. You can just see it. You can see the things that happen to people. I remember when we took off, there were 25 crew and 25 expeditioners and when we came back we had all these expeditioners that we were picking up on the way back through and you could just see this knowing look on the eyes of the crew that had been there before watching us as we got into the first of the ice and how for me there was just no way no description no way of being able to translate that it was just something so new, so completely different. There wasn't a language for it. I mean, I know that there's, you know, millions of words for snow in Inuit languages and all sorts of different stuff, but 
just to how to, you can translate it and you see it in people all the time. But it is this humility in a place like that that, that really, I think, brings everybody this expanse of this enormous place, this incredible powerhouse of the earth and the fact that we've been able to make one place on earth that, that it is everybody's and that war is banned and that, you know, we have... It's dedicated to peace and science and cooperative research. I mean, what a complete and utter joy that we've done that. And it was just fascinating. I just did not want to come back from that. And, uh, well, it just changed. It just changed me. And I was very lucky to live here. And so I could also then have on tap, really, the people at the Australian Antarctic Division to help and support um, collecting ideas and going and seeing the scientists and working with them. What an amazing story and it sounds like a completely, I'm so jealous, it sounds like a completely envious experience. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned and we'll be talking to Cora a little bit more about how she goes about bringing science to life through illustration and writing. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we are talking about the communication of scientific ideas through picture books and also the nexus of science and art. I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest, Coral Tullock. Oh, Coral, we're very interested in your opinion on this as an artist and a writer who writes about scientific ideas, about how you think that science and art are connected, about your perspective on that idea. I think I've got a little story to tell you that might tell you what that is about. One of the great people that I met um, through this, who is now sadly um, has passed, is Professor Pat Quilty, who has been to... I've, we, I dedicated my part of One Small Island to him and also we dedicated just recently the Book of Stone to him. As a geologist, he was groundbreaking what he... Was that, terrible pun sorry to in what he <laughs> in what he found and his work on Macquarie Island with uh, other people as well was also towards placing that in world heritage but he was when I first met him he was the chief scientist at the Australian Antarctic Division and I remember one night going and seeing a slideshow he'd put on uh, cutting through meteorites and just these incredible layers of colours and we talked later about how imagine clothes made out of this or, <laughs> you know, all these different things. But anyway, he and I became very firm friends over years and he would tell me incredible tales. So one day I was at his house and we were having a chat and I was talking about how, you know, now we know so much because we've got, you know, all this incredible um, equipment that can show us that... Um, you know, there's like the, an underground lake, you know, so far underneath the ice or there's this or there's that. And I forget how we were talking about it, but talking about the fact that people used to think, that's right, many years ago, have you heard the hole in the in the world theory? No. The hole in the world, it's such a great <laughs> story. And if you look it up online, there are people that actually believe in this. So anyway, there was meant to be a long time ago, there was thought that there was a hole sort of in the Arctic, up in the Arctic, anyway, that because at different seasons they would see all these um, deer, etc., coming down 
from what should be really snowy, really, you know, completely covered in ice areas. And they were really fat and looked good and healthy. And, of course, we know that it was the the waters and the streams of water that was complete, giving them, you know, green fields to chew on and whatever else. But they thought, like the Greeks thought, that there must have been a land in the south to balance the known lands in the north. They thought there must be, if there's a hole in the north, there must be one in the south. And they sent an expedition to try and find it in, in, in Antarctica. And I said to Pat, so, you know, it's amazing. You know, now we know, of course, there isn't one. And he said to me, do we? <laughs> and he would always make me think outside things. Even though we might have all this technology or all these different things, think differently, think of all these other ways of things. And that's what great science is to me, that, as I said to you, people will know the basis of what you've got to go by and what the standards are of things, but then you go further and you look further and you... And you just have hunches and you're curious and it makes a great world. Yeah. If we all stopped and didn't do anything, well, then there'd be nothing. And I suppose by working with people who think like that, well, then, of course, it inspires me. It's the sort of like the imagination maybe is a, a huge sort of joining force between science and art, that thinking outside of the box. True, and that they have given themselves the right to do that and allowed mm. themselves the right to do that, mm. you know. And, I mean, we know about people who have been persecuted for what they've believed in in science mm. and, you know, killed for what they've believed in in science and exiled and all sorts of things. But that science is still brave enough to say, I believe, you know, I know this to be true, but I believe it could be this and still try and find out those things. That is so vital to us as humans. It's completely vital. Absolutely. I think one of the most beautiful things about science is that, and I think it's what you're touching on, is like that permission to challenge. Yes. And yes. that no matter how set in stone uh, an idea seems, y- if you have a rational argument, you can challenge it. And I think that's kind of that curiosity and that fascination we were talking about. And something that sounds really interesting from the way you approach your work is that you have these beautiful landscapes or this place that you're trying to transport someone to, but then you also have these amazing individual stories of the lived experience but then you also have the science and the theory and I think a lot of sometimes where things go wrong is we focus on the theory and the matter of fact and we lose people so how do you go about using those three modes and marrying them together in your work and do you have any tips for other scientists on how to think about that? I suppose I mean for us it's looking at who our audience is so If we want to get across an idea, a story, let's just say whether that be a visual narrative or a written narrative, it doesn't matter. How we wish to get across that is looking at what our audience is and who we're talking to. So how I would approach talking to adults would be very different to how I'd approach talking to uh, grade threes compared to grade tens. You know, your level of what you were doing and how you were talking to people is, is very different. And that's it's, – it's having the understanding, I suppose, of working for years. I'm now – the one – Alison and I – book Alison and I are doing will be my 65th book. Wow. So you have a long time in being able to work out what is correct for what audience or what would be the right thing. And it's not a solo thing because it's collaborative. So it's the people we're working with. It's the scientists checking everything. I'm really – 
serious about everything being really checked thoroughly. And then we have, you know, editors and we have people to help us and designers and things. So we might work on an idea and take that to a publisher or in the same way you would do that with a film and you take it to somebody and talk about these things or theatre production, etc. So you you create a narrative to how you would tell that idea or that story to that audience and it's either accepted or not. And it's who you've got behind you, working behind you in collaboration, that help that get across. It's just having that experience of knowing what that audience is. So for books, um, I mean, both Alison and I have written quite a bit on Antarctica for adult, you know, magazines and newspapers and things like that. So that writing is very different than um, what we do for something like this. So it's just who, whoever your audience is and trying to get across the main um, messages that you need yeah. to get across. What I really loved about One Small Island, as you were explaining earlier before we started recording the show, is that there was this really, um, I don't want to say simplistic, but... Uh, stripped back narrative the whole way throughout and then it was complemented by your journal entries that kind of brought to life the lived experience and allowed people to have a deep dive but then it also had these beautiful landscapes and I think it kind of married all three perspectives so someone can kind of become uh, acclimatized to it by skimming through but then you know you can start to deep dive and I think it was a really powerful way to look at how you can captivate an audience with something and kind of meet them where they are because their level might differ. And what we were talking about before too is really important about education. There is – I have seen this book done in the most incredible way. The teacher that has done that has been holding some uh, – always has held some conference talks on this. Um, but incredible. And this teacher has got together every single teacher for year sevens throughout the curriculum and used this book – to get the Year 7 students to create their own take on this and each one did a page each. And so it went through... So the science, the understanding, the the outcomes of what happens, where if you do this, that's going to happen, you know, and if you do that, that will happen. All the thinking, etc., and all this working out, the students had to do themselves throughout all the different curriculums and all the teachers were on board with it. It was amazing and such a fantastic thing to do. Wow. That's maybe how we have to introduce science instead of mm. just seeing it as, so today we're doing science. I mean, how stupid is that? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's integrated into everything. Stop compartmentalising. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's a really lovely example about how something that's really well communicated can have um, applications far beyond what you first imagined. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. I hope you enjoyed the show because I certainly have. If you did, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast or follow us on your favourite social media channel. For now, thank you and goodbye from myself, Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Kate Johnson, and of course, our expert guest, Coral Tullock. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This programme was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.